Thank you, Rosemary, for uh, accompanying tonight and for Alan and the choice of the songs. Uh, really helped set the stage for what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. I think I gave you fair warning last week when I preached on spiritual gifts and how our necessity to use our spiritual gifts in the context of the local church that um, this week would be a topical message as well. We have our missionary, David Barslow, who is coming in from Barcelona. Uh, this Wednesday, and he will be speaking for us next Lord's Day. I'd encourage you to try to be here for that. And then the following Lord's Day is Pastor Brian Borgman from Nevada, who will be our family camp speaker. He has also agreed uh, to preach for us that following week. And so the next two weeks, we will have guest speakers. And so that is the reason why I've decided to wait on Second Thessalonians, which will be our next book. We do preach through books of the Bible. We have several visitors here. You know, we don't just topical message uh, around or whatever tickles our fancy, but we do redeem the opportunity in between books of the Bible to address certain issues that we think are important. Last week we looked at um, the importance of using our spiritual gifts, where Paul exhorts Timothy to stir afresh the gift of God inside of him. Tonight we're going to be looking at a very practical message from Psalm 5. Um, it's very practical, and um, I think it's fitting uh, for our church and fitting for us every now and again to consider, are we pleasing God with how we are walking? And what do I mean by that? The old King James, walk meant what? How we live, right? Okay, so pleasing God with our walk and our talk. And you'll see these themes throughout, being led and walking and, and how we speak, how we pray, and the words of deceit. And we're going to look at this as it's contrasted between the righteous and the wicked very clearly. Now, the chorus that we just sung is very familiar. Uh, as long as I've been a believer, I think that's, that's been around. You know, give ear to my words, O oh Lord. It's just one of those that um, are just so familiar. I would encourage you at the outset, don't let the familiarity of those first few verses that, are in, that make up that chorus distract from the true meaning of this psalm. And I think you're going to see that as we go through uh, this psalm. Now, I don't think I need a large introduction to explain the book of Psalms. Most of you know that that has been called the hymn book of the Hebrews. Uh, many of them were written by David. There's 150 psalms. 73, I believe, are ascribed to David. Um, 27 to miscellaneous writers, including Solomon and Moses and the sons of Korah and so forth. And 50 are anonymous, and, but many of those are probably David's as well. <clears throat> the Psalms are rich because they're full of emotion. We can relate to the Psalms. If you're a child of God, and you're trusting in your covenant God, you can relate to the Psalms in times of despair, times of loneliness, times of distress, times of persecution, but also times of joy and laughter. You can relate humility, pride, uh, these types of things are all themes that are contained throughout this book. So no matter what you're going through, at any given time in your walk, you should be able to go to the Psalms and find some measure of comfort. You should be able to relate somehow to what the psalmist had already gone through. Now it tells us that this is a psalm of David and it was meant to be accompanied by a winded instrument, probably a horn or a flute of some sort. Now, the, content, the actual occasion of the psalm, we don't really know. There's speculations that maybe this is the time of the rebellion of Absalom. We just don't know. We're not going to try to pinpoint this. What we do know is this was a time of trouble, and there were real enemies that David was facing. 
And Psalm 3 and 4, 5 and 6 have these themes of the righteous contrasted to the wicked. And so that's the theme of it is contained here. This psalm is rich because it is about the believer's life. The believer's life on the inside. The believer's life on the outside. Everything about his walk and his talk are evident here. And all of that is contrasted to what the unbeliever looks like in those regards. The psalm is wonderful because the psalmist has a great zeal for the character of God, for the holiness of God. And you'll see that as we go through this. And the psalm naturally breaks up into two sections. That would be the most easily, easy way to, uh, to break it up. Verses 1 through 7. He prays, he describes the wicked, and then he, he, he talks to God again. And then verses 8 to 12 is really a repeat of what he's done. I've decided to break it up differently into five sections, which actually the hymn that we sung uh, broke it up into those five sections. And that's David before the face of God as he's praying. And then as he's preparing to pray or beginning to pray, and then he remembers the wicked, and then he remembers what makes me to differ, and then he's, he's communing with God again, and then he goes back to the wicked, and then back to the blessings of the righteous. And so we're going to look at that, the first, third, fifth sections, um, which are towards God, and, and the second and fourth sections, which are towards wicked men. So again, the title of the message is Pleasing God with Our Talk and Our Walk. And let's read the text now. <clears throat> Reading from the New American Standard, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But, a glorious but, but as for me, by your abundant loving kindness I will enter your house. At your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. Then the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who bless the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So, Psalm 5, broken up into five sections. The first section is verses 1 to 3. Do you pray with passion and persistence? Do you pray with passion and persistence? Notice that King David began his day with prayer. Do you begin your day with prayer? 
just as a, the rudder to a large Navy vessel, if they still use rudder, <laughs> to the older ship, just as a rudder would steal the course of a ship and may take a while to get the ship on its course, so too we should order our day by beginning it with prayer and setting the course of our day in the right direction and to go as to where God would have us. He says in the second half of verse 2, For to you I pray. The psalmist declares that he will seek the Lord alone. He is the only object of worship. Our only hope in times of need. Now, the King James Version, interestingly, has in the verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. It's really more of a groan. Consider my groaning. And that's what the NAS has here. One of the Puritans said, Meditation before prayer is like the tuning of an instrument and setting it for the harmony. Meditation before prayer does mature our conceptions and exercise our desires. You see, the idea of before you start just laying out your supplications and your requests, consider who you are approaching. On what grounds are you approaching? Meditate on that. Consider that. Even groan to that. And notice the types of prayer that God hears. Just in the first one and a half verses, you've got three different things. You've got, give ear to my words, first of all. Then, consider my groaning. And then hear the sound of my what? Cry. Three different forms of, of vocal talk, if you will, or moaning, or, or to, to directed towards God. It's a manifestation of what is inside of the heart and how is it, it is expressing itself to a holy God. And sometimes it's words, sometimes it's groaning, and sometimes it's a cry for help, isn't it? For the true child of God. This should be encouraging to us that He hears our prayers. And even in those times of groaning when our situation is so desperate that we can't even formulate the words properly to approach God, praise God for Romans 8.26 where it says the Spirit takes our, 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 our prayers and makes them acceptable to God. With groanings too deep to understand. Are you approaching God in the right Way. Let's look at these first three verses now. And James Montgomery Boyce is most helpful. His, co- his commentary on the Psalms has just been um, a great help um, on several Psalms that I've taught on. But first of all, David's prayer had an urgency in it. Or you could use the word passion. He says, he uses words like give ear to God and, and to consider. And this teaches us that this is a serious prayer that David is embarking on. It's not some repetition of prayers that he's flipping through in the morning. He's considering his prayer. He's saying, give ear to my prayer. Consider me as your covenant child and hear my prayer. Passion is oozing from these first few verses. C.H. Spurgeon says, prayer without fervency is like hunting with a dead dog. James tells us in chapter 5 how Elijah prayed that he pray, you know, he prayed earnestly is what he did, that it should not rain and then prayed again and then the Lord opened up the skies. There's something to be said for earnestness in prayer. But notice secondly that his prayer also had a persistence to it. Two times in verse 3 it says, In the morning, 
In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. The idea is as soon as it becomes light, actually not even before it comes light, because the example of our Lord, right, He would rise before it was light and go and pray. And consider John Gill. He's usually very wordy and I usually avoid even reading him. But consider what he says here about the morning being the proper time for prayer. And I'm not saying you're sinning if you're not praying in the morning. But there's something to be said for praying, for starting our day and beginning our day aright with God. Listen to Gill. The morning is the proper time for prayer, both to return thanks to God for refreshing sleep and rest, for preservation of, from danger and fire and thieves and murderers, for renewed mercies in the morning, as also to pray to God to be kept from evil and dangers of the following day, and to give daily food and to succeed in business and employments of life for the continuation of every mercy, both temporal and spiritual. How appropriate to begin your day like that. Spurgeon also said that an hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. Now that was before the internet TV and all that. I mean, maybe we could say an hour in the morning is worth four in the evening in our day. Because, And what does he mean by that? It is so hard once you get moving in your day to articulate your thoughts, to focus on what you want to say to God. And it really does take longer when you try to do it later in the day or even in the evening. There's something to be said for beginning your day. Spurgeon also said, prayer is the key to the day and the lock at night. I like that. So true prayer will be, it will be earnest, it will be uh, importunate, it, it, it thinks, it cries, it considers. And, and this word, when it says here, heed the sound of my cry for help, doesn't that just communicate something like a, a, a shrilling heart cry from deep within a soul, crying to the only one that can ha- answer and to hear so the cry reaches the very heart of God that our high priest can be sympathetic with us and sympathize with us. Consider how our Lord Jesus Christ cried on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what I think of when I see the cry here. It's a cry, a loud cry. It's not a whimpering like what a little child would do in a corner. This is a cry to God. And he hears early in the morning. We ought to chart our course for the day to meditate and to pray and not be given to sloth, not be given to given all the series of excuses of why we don't begin the day with the Lord Reminds me of Luke 18 and that persistent widow. And she came again and again. And what does it say here? Jesus says, And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry to Him day and night? Yes, He hears. We learn that we are to persist in prayer, even if it appears that God is delaying in answering Many of you know George Mueller. In the late 1800s, he built the, all the orphanages in England. And it is said, we read a um, <clears throat> biography of his life, and it is said that, I may have the number wrong, that he has seen over 10,000 answers to prayer 
And if you get the full edition of his journals, it's like 800 pages, 800 or 900 pages. But there was something that he began to pray for at a very, as a very young man, his two good friends. Some of you probably heard this story. And for 60 years, he prayed for these two men. One of them was converted when he preached his last sermon 60 years later. And the other one was converted within a year after he died. Persistent prayer. He persisted. He did not give, oh, maybe it's just they're not one of the elect and, you know, just run off to something. He prayed and prayed and he was an incredible man of faith. So we need to pray and not give up. Not give up. And you all know, whether you use Lyft, whether you have a very sharp mental mind of Lyft, you have those things, your family members, the salvation of, of those whom you love that you pray for. Don't give up. But also to pray for God's glory and to be affected when you see the name of God being smeared in our society, that it should affect you and that you would pray, Vindicate your name, O God. How long will you, will you put up with this? To pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, a third characteristic is that David had an expectant spirit. Look at the second half of verse 3. In the morning I will direct my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Actually, the King James says, and look up. Can you imagine? I'll direct my prayer to you and I'll look up. And wait. I'll look up and wait. Actually, the NIV says, wait in expectation. That's probably a, a pretty good translation. He was praying in faith and he expected God to answer. And if we expect the Lord to open up the storehouses of His grace, we ought to wait and, and, and expect to receive blessings from Him as we would pray according to His will. James talks about the one when he asks, that he must believe and not doubt. <clears throat> so the psalmist is adamant. He says, he says, you will hear my voice in verse 3. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. We must direct and order our prayer to our covenant God and then watch eagerly. Reminds me of Psalm 130 when he says, actually a couple times in that passage, 130 verse 5, my, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. And look at the covenant language even just here in the opening verses here. In verse 1, in verse 3, it's, it's Jehovah, it's, it's the Lord. And then in verse 2, my king and my God. It's, it's, so he, he, he expands on that. He uses the same language in Psalm 84. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. To whom else should we go? than to a king. If you are a subject of the king, if you are a child of the king, to whom else do you go? I think all too often for us, we want to run hither and thither before going to God first. The one that can truly hear, the one that can truly answer as we would pray according to his will. Well, so much for this first section. His confidence in approaching God now is stated in this next section. And as we move on to this, we see that our God is holy and righteous and he hates wickedness. David has confidence that God will hear his prayer because he is one of his covenant children and unlike the wicked, he walks uprightly. He walks uprightly. 
So David reflects on the, the wicked and their walk and their talk. He reminds himself that he must be different than these evil persons if he is to be heard by God. And you know the verse, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so David is reminded of these. God will not hear men of bloodshed and workers of iniquity. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, similar language, again and again throughout the psalms, by the way, the face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them. Look at these verses. Let's read this again. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man, man of bloodshed and deceit. What is this language that he uses? The types of evildoers that he's mentioning here. It's almost as though he starts more general and then goes to the more extreme, vehement ones that are opposed to God. He says that he, he speaks of the wicked. He speaks of the boastful. He speaks of those who do iniquity, those who speak falsehood, men of bloodshed and men of deceit. Brethren, these types of people were the enemies of David. But let's apply this to our Lord Jesus Christ. Who were the enemies of Christ? Name the list again. The boastful, those who do iniquity, they speak falsehood. All the mock hearings that we were reading about today in family worship. The, um, the men of bloodshed, men of deceit. Those were the very enemies of Christ. And brothers and sisters, these are our enemies as well. Men of deceit, men who speak falsehood, the boastful, the arrogant, those, those who have no regard for God and His standards. Those have been the enemies of the church of Christ throughout church history. If you know anything about church history and the persecution that has taken place in the last 2,000 years and literally the hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of souls that have been executed for their faith. So let us not be given to these types of sins. These are wicked men who God takes no pleasure in this. And then David also considers how his holy God views sin. And again, the words here, you hate, you do not take pleasure, you destroy, and the Lord abhors. Those are strong words. You know, you can go to a church probably a couple miles from here and hear how much God just loves the sinner and just loves the sinner. It's just he has a little problem with his sin right here. Just If we could just remove the sin, everything would be okay. God hates the wicked that practice this. He abhors them. And they will spend an eternity in a place called hell if they do not repent. He takes no pleasure in them. He hates them. And it's remarkable how many, even in our day, think that somehow they're going to sneak into heaven and their sin won't be noticed. How many are deceived in our day into thinking that I can cherish these few little sins and keep them over here and certainly I'll get into heaven. Maybe those eyes of fire will not cast right on me and when he's looking over here, I'll get in over here. What folly! The Bible is clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We need an atonement for our sin and for the elect, for God's chosen people, whom he has called forth. Christ has been that sacrifice for us, us once and for all. It even goes on and says that 
that they're men of deceit in verse 6. And some may know much about the Christian lingo, may know much about God, may even be able to quote Scripture. As people that I've witnessed to in the past, they know the Bible, but their heart is hard and it's far from God. What a fearful thing. Men of deceit who play the game of religion, perhaps the role of a hypocrite, while cherishing sin in their hearts. And some eventually deceive themselves. Isn't that what Second Thessalonians says? That he will send a deluding influence upon them. Verse 5, that they will not, the boastful shall not stand before the eyes of the Lord. How can you not think of that glorious description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1 where it says that he has eyes as a flame of fire, piercing and searching and seeing every detail of your life. They will not stand before the eyes of the Lord. And for you children, if I could just speak with, to you for a moment, so often it's easy to think that I can get away with the sin if mommy or daddy doesn't see it. Or if, if the Sunday school teacher is not looking, maybe I can get away with this. God sees all things. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So consider that next time you think that you can hide sin. Some ask the question, well, how much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven? What kind of a heart would ask such a question as that? If you are, if you are in love with the Lord and you're in love with a Savior who was sinless, why would you ask such a question? How much sin can I get away with? No one gets away with any sin. Sin must be dealt with. And it is dealt with in one of two places. Either on the, the cross of Christ as He would pay for it for His people or in eternity in hell. No one gets away with sin. And you children, you need to remember that. That you will give an account before a holy God of how you have lived your life if you have trusted Him or if you have rejected Jesus Christ. We must see sin the way God sees sin. And God sees sin in such a magnitude that He sent a Savior and the Savior was His own dear Son that died the horrible death on the cross. That's how God views sin. And you have to start seeing it like that and detest it and love the holiness of God. One of the commentators says, Prayers of this kind may have more value in our age than our age is inclined to admit. They are surely born out of a deep sense of the sinfulness of sin and out of the conviction that the only one who can stem the tide of sin is the Almighty. Well, having looked at these three verses that... David describes the wicked. Let's move on to this next section, verses 7 and 8. David, as he's speaking against the wicked, perhaps he remembers his own sin here. What causes him to differ? And he tells us here. David is humble concerning his position before God. He says, and it is glorious, but, it's like the Ephesians 2.4, but God. Here he is, but as for me... By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow and worship for you. 
positively. He says, but, yes, I'm a sinner, I'm aware of my sin, but I am a worshiper of Jehovah God. And I go to Him and worship Him. This is the only way that you can expect prayers to be heard. He does not plead His own righteousness in coming to God, but He pleads God's mercy or His loving kindness. That's translated mercy in other plays. But by your abundant mercy, I will enter your house. Not because I've been a good boy, not because I've done this or that, but because of your great mercy, I will enter your house to be a worshiper of you. Reminds me of Titus 3.5, Not according to our works, but according to His great mercy, He saved us. And the Pharisee and the tax collector as well. The Pharisees, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like other men. You know, but what does the, the tax collector say? He, he would not even look up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. David does not sit here and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like other men. But he says, but as for me, because of your great mercy and your great loving kindness, I will enter your house. I will worship you because of what you have done. And so Wesley, in that wonderful hymn, Bold, I Approach the Eternal Throne, is true. Now when he says he, he says he, is, he'll, he bows in reverence in the temple, now some of you may be thinking, well, the temple wasn't built yet. <laughs> and there was a tabernacle, and when the tent was at Shiloh, that's where the ark was at that time, and it's actually referred to as a temple, and you'll remember just on Mother's Day when we looked at Hannah, um, it's actually called the temple where, where Hannah went to. So in 1 Samuel 1, 1 Samuel chapter 3, those are uh, some key references there where the tabernacle is actually referred to as the temple. The temple's not quite built yet, just to clarify that. Well, verse 8. The psalmist beseeches the Lord for direction. He says, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Now, this is actually his first request. This is his first request to the Lord. The whole psalm can be looked at as a prayer, a meditation to the Lord, a song to the Lord, but here is the first request, and he's simply adding, asking for what? Direction and guidance. And why? Because of his foes. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. He wants to be led in the course of holy obedience. He wants his walk to be pure before God. And notice that over half of the psalm is gone before he offers a request. Is this instructive for how we pray? I encourage you tomorrow morning, look at your watch when you begin to pray. Look at your watch when you ask for your first request. And then look at your watch when you end your prayer. That might be very instructive for how your devotional life is structured. And if there's only two minutes in the first section and 20 in the second or whatever, some imbalance, it's wrong. We ought to praise Him for who He is. Study the Lord's Prayer again and again. It's the concerns of God before we get to our own concerns. There's an exercise, homework for you. So David is now speaking of his walk. He prays that he be led of the Lord and that his path would be both level and straight. And several verses through the Psalms are very similar to this. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me 
in a level path because of my foes. That's Psalm 27 and verse 11. And it is good for us to pray to be led in the paths of righteousness, to be led on the highway of holiness, as as, uh, the prophet Isaiah puts it. And we need to beware of presumption in this regard. Listen to uh, Dixon, the commentator. He says, All the more is the godly are sensible of their own blindness, weakness, and readiness to go astray, so much the more so they call for and depend on God's leading them. You see, as the hymn writer says, as Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Our tendency is to go astray. We need to not be presumptuous, but to constantly be asking, Lord, lead us. Lead us in in where you would have us to go. Well, David now, after verses 7 and 8, returns to more descriptive language and a second request in verses 9 and 10. He prays against his foes. He describes them as those who sin with their words, their talk, if you will. And in light of his prayer for direction, he reminds himself of one great fact, that the word of his foes cannot be trusted. The words of the wicked are not to be trusted. He says, Make your way straight before me, verse 8, beginning of verse 9, for there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward parts is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. We don't know, but perhaps someone had just let him down as to which direction to go. And so this is why so vehemently he says, there's nothing reliable in what they say. You can only speculate on the the circumstances. But certainly that phrase, their throat is an open grave, I hope sounds familiar to you. That's one of the passages that the Apostle Paul quotes in that magnum opus of Romans, the book of Romans describing man's sinfulness and how we can be just before God and sanctified in God's sovereignty and what that looks like in working it all out. But in chapter 3, verses 10 to 20, he, he draws from a series of psalms and from Isaiah and puts together the depravity of man, how man is depraved by nature apart from supernatural regenerating grace. And he lays it forth there. And this is one of the verses that he says in verse 13 of chapter 3, their throat is an open grave. The natural condition of sinful men apart from grace. Notice he says, right above that, their inward part is destruction itself. Deep down within, for the very first inclinations and thoughts of the hearts, they're all full of sin. They're all tainted. Just as a stream is poisoned by a fountain of poison, so too a defiled heart poisons everything that it does. Out of the heart flow what? All manner of wickedness, Jesus says. Their throat is an open grave. The foul stench manifested by their obscene language and obscene thoughts if they don't even come out in words and their obscene actions of how they walk. And they flatter with their tongue. That's interesting. Well, why would they flatter with their tongue? Well, these are the reprobate. These are the wicked. It's for the purpose to deceive and to destroy. These are bad people. And as you would choose your friends wisely, children and adults, you need to consider what, what type of behavior is pleasing to God and what is not. And this is fresh in my mind because we're teaching our, we've been instructing our children in this regard. How do you choose good friends? Well, this, these are the kind of people to avoid very clearly here. They're bad people. 
Now in verse 10, David presents a second request, and let's read it together. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. This is his second request, and ultimately he is asking for God's judgment to be dispensed upon them, to fall on the wicked. And in the Psalter, this is the very first and precatory prayer. Now these types of prayers can be hard to understand from time to time, but it's important that we understand that when David prays for the the justice of God to, to be manifested in the judgment of God upon the wicked, that he's not praying for personal enemies per se, but those who oppose God, those who oppose the anointed of God. David's great concern is that they have rebelled against Jehovah God. C.H. Spurgeon um, gives an interesting story during family worship. Of course, you know he had two twin boys, right? And so he's uh, reading one of the uh, imprecatory psalms, and the ten-year-old says, to the, says, Father, do you think it right for good men to pray for the destruction of their enemies? Also, Jesus taught us to love our enemies. So the little ten-year-old said, Wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. Mr. Spurgeon said, My son, if a robber should enter the house and murder your mother and escape, and the police were after him, would you not pray that they would catch him and he be brought to justice? The boy says, Well, yes. He says, My son, the men who were after David were bloody men, men full of falsehood and crime. And he goes on, I shortened it, but it says that his son was very satisfied with the explanation. And so hopefully that satisfies you as to, you know, sometimes it's hard to understand. How can we love our enemies? Where's the tension here? Loving our enemies and praying for the, 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 that God would judge the wicked. But we need a zeal like this for the purity and holiness of God. Do you see that? That's what this is born out of. This isn't just some personal revenge that David's trying to vent, right? He's praying because God's name has been disgraced. Because they have a, their throats in open grave, their inward parts destruction. So again, David's great concern is that they have rebelled against his God. And so this is a warning for us, because so many fall in this category of the wicked. So many. And then even throughout the Word of God, you have Absalom himself, Judas, and others. He should be a vivid warning to us. Well, lastly, the last two verses, and briefly. Have you found refuge in the Lord? Let's read verses 11 and 12 again. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Verse 10, David is foretelling the judgment of the ungodly, and here, by contrast, he magnifies the security of his chosen people. Do you see that? He's foretelling that hold them guilty, judge them what they're by their own devices, thrust them out, the rebellious against you. And then he says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. There's so much security here. It's just oozing out here that you may shelter them that you may love that those who love your name may exalt in you and then the last phrase you surround them with favor as with a shield 
when the favor of God and the grace of God is on upon his children, it is as though there is an impassable shield around his children. David is bubbling with joy here as he considers the righteous, how the Lord covers them. Take refuge, be glad, to sing for joy, there's the Christian's talk, to offer up a sacrifice of praise and to give thanks. This is fitting for the, for the Christian. And joy is a great privilege of the Christian. When unrepentant sinners in their sin are punished, we rejoice because God is the victor. And the wicked may laugh at first, but in, that they will weep in the day of judgment. And for those, and particularly the persecuted church, they may weep now, but they will have everlasting joy in the presence of the Lord. Isaiah 26 says, He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You see, in order to hate sin, you must love holiness. You must cherish holiness. It's a good study, study the holiness and righteousness of God. Well, in verse 12, God blesses the righteous man, it says, and protects uh, with favor as with a shield. And this blessing is, is constant. It's, 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 it's eternal. It doesn't change whatsoever. It's irreversible and it's infinite. You see, once a child of God has been supernaturally regenerated and trans- transformed, he is secure. And for us, in the New Covenant, this blessing comes to us how? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how the blessing comes to us, uh, those of us in the New Covenant. He is the righteous one. He is the just one. He is the one whom God has protected and delivered and placed on a throne. He is the one that intercedes for His people. All the purposes of God are brought forth by Jesus Christ. Christ is the righteous Savior. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this favor and protection that is here is upon the church in our day and upon you as a child of God if you're trusting Him by faith. Well, let's draw some concluding applications. I hope you see how this psalm is. It's it's more than just a prayer and a prayer in the morning. There's a lot in here, isn't there? And I hope you see how it fits together and how David uh, prays and has a zeal for the glory of God and for His holiness, and how we ought to have that. We should not be flippant towards sin. We should not be casual towards sin. How we ought to fall in love with Jesus Christ again and again, and how we ought to desire to grow in holiness, to grow in our sanctification that we would be putting sin to death and cutting off right hands, whatever is necessary, that we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, that we may, by God's grace, have something of the heart of David here and having a zeal for God's glory and humbling yourself and not caring what really what happens to you. What's really important? It's not necessarily your life. It is God. God is the one who has created all things. He's working all things out after the counsel of His will. Praise God that He uses feeble, weak creatures like us in advancing His kingdom. We need to carefully weigh our words and and where are we listening to? Where are we getting the guidance to what paths to go down and where to walk down? Where are we receiving these things? Is it the television? Is it the counseling show on AM 760 or 740 or 
or K-Praise, or where are you going? Is it someone else? Is it some support group? I hope it's this book with the assistance of the Holy Spirit as you would read and study this book. There's no secret as to what the will of God is for the believer. Study this book and ask yourself, Do you have a zeal for the glory of God? This is what drove the psalmist. I know I keep saying that. I want to impress this upon you. I hope you never think of Psalm 5 the same if you've thought of it as I have in the past. Study the doctrine of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. You must consider everything on the scales of eternity. Thomas Watson said, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. Isn't that wonderful? The wicked look forward to a a terrible place of punishment, a place where the sun will never rise again, a place where the common grace of God is the causing His sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust will be taken away. A place of eternal punishment and pain It is my prayer that no one in this room end up in such a place. Because there are degrees of punishment in hell. And to the degree of hearing the gospel and hearing faithful men plead with you to flee to Christ, your punishment will be most severe. And then how does this psalm point to Christ? I've been mentioning it as we go, uh, go through this. Arising early, he had a zeal for God to do his meat, was to do the will of him who sent him, right? He cried out to God, and that he is the one from all, all the blessings come to us, and here is our high priest. So let's take encouragement. Let's take a renewed, um, I, I hope there's something deep within you where there's a renewed determination to commit to, first of all, having communion with God in prayer. I guess I made that assumption at the beginning that there's something of that with each one of you. But to examine that and to consider how does it match up to David's prayers to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us in your holy word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, even things that can be hard to understand, David's second request, uh, praying, that the wicked would ultimately be, be judged by you. Lord, give us a passion for your glory, a passion for your honor. And Lord, may it grieve us when we hear the name of the Lord being taken in vain, when we see many profaning your day in the pursuit of themselves. Lord, may we be grieved at these things. And Lord, we pray that you would stir us to a greater fervency in our devotional lives, a greater zeal for your honor and glory in all that we do, in all of our walk, in all of our talk. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.